Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm Liz Nord, Editor-in-Chief of No Film School. I'm Emily Booter, Managing Editor of No Film School. And I'm John Fusco, Producer at No Film School. It is Thursday, June 16th. On this week's show, we will be discussing our film-centric response to the tragedy in Orlando, the Sheffield DocFest Awards, some of our most intriguing No Film School stories from this week, and as always, news you can use about gear, upcoming deadlines, new film releases, and Ask No Film School. It's Indie Film Weekly. We are in downtown Brooklyn, New York, and we're here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy making films. This week, I, Liz Nord, am joined by John and Emily as Ryan, the founder of No Film School, is still out working on his feature film Amateur for Netflix. Um, Hi, guys. Hello. Hello. How's everybody doing? Good. Good. (laughs) We're all excited because it's summer here. It's finally getting warm in Brooklyn. There's lots and lots of activities, both film and otherwise. What have you guys been up to? Well, last night I got the chance to go to this panel um, that the Lower East Side Film Festival was holding. Um, and it was about horror and suspense screenwriting. So some of the panelists included Jeremy Saulnier and uh, Ted Talley, who wrote, or Ted Talley, who wrote uh, Silence of the Lambs. And Ooh, that stuff's your jam. Yeah, it was great. And I'm going to be posting an article sort of with their wisdom and highlights from the hour and a half long panel. Uh either later this week or sometime next week, depending on when I can get around to it. But it was really good stuff, so keep an eye out for that. And I've been spending a little bit of time at Metrograph, the recently opened theater in uh, downtown Manhattan. And it's interesting because when it first opened, I interviewed the programmers who told me that their vision was for it to be a sort of communal film space for people to talk and talk about movies and get jobs and just an interactive space for the film community. And I was kind of skeptical about that because a lot of the theaters in New York are more just, you know, you see the movie and then you leave and then you go hang out with your friends. But since Metrograph has a restaurant upstairs and a really cool bar space downstairs, people really do come out of the movie and mingle. And um, when I was coming out of the film, I saw the fits. There was another screening that was about to go in, and all the crowd from my screening and from the screening that was about to go in, we all just talked and hung out, and I ran into a lot of people from the film community, so it's doing its job. Wow, I love that. I can't wait to check it out. And the food's really good at the restaurant upstairs. Which helps. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so I went to the Brooklyn Film Festival last week and have to thank them for inviting us to check it out. I mean, there's film festivals like every five seconds here in New York, so it's hard for us to make them all. But um, I'm glad that we've been kind of making our our presence known out there. Um, It was a a really good lineup. And I saw a doc called The Rebound by a first time filmmaker, Shana Allen. It was actually the documentary audience award winner. And um, I, I'm going to interview Shana for the site, too. It's a doc about a wheelchair basketball team, and it kind of, like, blows your perceptions of what people in wheelchairs can and can't do because these dudes are super strong. There's a scene where one of them is, like, doing full chin-ups in a wheelchair with the wheelchair attached, like, just because, you know, you always want a little extra weight when you're doing chin-ups. Crazy. 
Um, and they had an awesome animated short selection, which kind of reminded me of how much I love animated shorts. This one guy um, really had a kind of no film schooly story. So I'll quickly mention that there was a, a filmmaker all the way from Hong Kong there. His name is Hoi Chu. And he made a short called Red Egg, which is actually available on YouTube. So I encourage people to check it out. It was a, a whole film made, an animation made with sand. So actual grains of sand. And he talked about his process and how it's so painstaking because you create these whole scenes with sand and then you shake it around and it makes action happen. But if one thing, you know, if a little breeze blows in, the entire shot can be ruined and you have to start all the way over from scratch every time. So it's like really intense. And he was basically talking about how he had kind of a mainstream job and he was married and he had a kid. And then basically the marriage ended and he his wife got custody of the kid and then he was totally depressed and decided to like follow his lifelong dream of doing animation and film. And he did it. And the, this work is beautiful. And I guess he's going to stick with it. So. so every week on this show, we cover news items that are particularly relevant to filmmakers. Um, but of course, there's also all kinds of larger global news going on all the time. And um, there's always overlap, especially because filmmakers are often very in tune with what's happening in the world and reflecting that in their work. So when something like the, the Orlando shooting um, that happened here in the U.S. this past week um, happens, you know, we we have to we definitely have to sort of stop and take notice um, and think about what is a filmmaker's response to such a thing. So I'm sure everyone listening knows that this was the largest gunfire massacre in U.S. history and occurred at an LGBTQ nightclub. Um, so while it's not film news, it definitely affects all of us, I, I think all Americans and, and everybody. Um, and because we here at No Film School believe in the power of film to connect people and create empathy, it seems like a particularly good moment to, you know, go out and support the the burgeoning LGBTQ film scene, which has just been growing in sort of scope and types of films and number of filmmakers and, and recognition of the films, you know, just wildly in the last 25 years. Um, to that end, the 40th edition of Frameline, which is the world's longest running and most widely recognized LGBTQ film festival, actually opens tonight in San Francisco. It runs through June 26th. Uh, they have screenings all over the Bay Area. It is an awesome festival with all kinds of programming. One of our own editors, V. Renee, is herself a queer filmmaker, and she posted a supercut on our site, No Film School, of, of LGBT films through the years. And, uh, you know, we all have our favorites here. What are some of yours? Blue is the warmest color. Yeah, that's probably mine, too. And Tangerine. I haven't I haven't seen too many in the canon, I don't think. And you guys should all revisit the landmark queer film Poison by Todd Haynes. Ooh, I haven't seen that one. Yeah, I mean, there's so many. If you Google LGBT cinema, like every publication, you know, has at this point kind of put out their top 25 or top 50 list. And there's just so many. I am um, one of my favorites is the incredibly true adventures of two girls in love, which if you haven't seen it, is kind of like a precursor to blue is the warmest color from like 95. I loved it. Um, and then this past year, actually at Tribeca, I interviewed the filmmaker Ingrid Jungerman, who made women who kill, which was just such an entertaining film. And I love it because it sort of marks a shift in some ways in, in queer cinema where it's just like, it's just a film about people 
And the fact that they're gay is not what the story is about. She was on the panel last night that I was at. Did she was on the yeah. She was on the suspense and horror panel that I was talking about earlier today. So, um, she'll she was great. Um, so you'll be seeing her words uh, in that article too. I love it. It all comes around. She's cool. Yeah, she's she was cool really lady. cool. Yeah. She's great. Um, One thing that she said that was really interesting, just that I remember, an audience member asked how each of the writers deals with naming their characters, um, which was a very specific question that I'd never really thought about before. Um, But each of them had like a really kind of crazy answer and all of them were like, it's really hard to name your characters. But Ingrid specifically said that she always chooses gender neutral names um, for her characters. which makes sense as a LGBT um, filmmaker, but also it makes a lot of sense just for writing a screenplay in general because, I mean, Saulnier went on later to say that he originally wrote, I don't know if anyone has seen Green Room, but he originally wrote one of the characters, um, Alia Shakat's character, as a man, but they couldn't find the right energy mm. um, for with any of the people that they were trying to cast. Um, and since Sam is also a girl's name, they ended up casting Alia because she had the right energy for it. I love that. And it is. It's so useful for sort of anything. Like we did a podcast a few weeks ago about... Um, filmmakers or film subjects with disabilities and all the filmmakers on the show like their point was kind of similar like the character doesn't have to be a disabled character it can just be like there's a disabled guy who happens to be the barista or the best friend I love that idea of sort right. of baking it into the script in in that kind of way yeah just people being people yeah I think people being people <laughs> you guys um so yeah if you you know like many of us you know, see tragedies like this happen and want to figure out a way to respond. I think one way the filmmaking community can is by supporting films, you know, that deal with the topics or in this case, like check out, you know, an LGBT film fest in your area. Like almost every city has one now. Let your queer filmmaker friends know that that you support them and their work. The Sheffield Doc Fest wrapped up this week and they announced their award winners on Tuesday. It's a really fun, great festival. It also happens to be one of the biggest documentary markets in Europe. Um, their Grand Jury Award went to Kristen Johnson's camera person, who we actually interviewed on video um, at Sundance. And I saw that film at the New York Film Festival a couple months ago and I bawled. It was incredible. It was one of the best films I've seen in the past two years, actually. Kristen Johnson is a documentarian, and the film is basically she painstakingly went through all of her leftover footage from all of the documentaries she shot all over the world across 15 years and found really small but poignant moments that point to the subject's humanity and to the art of documentary filmmaking. It's really funny, surprisingly. It's really sad, and it's got a lot of empathy. Yeah, she's shot some of the the best-known documentaries during her career, so I'm really dying to see that movie. Everyone's been talking about it. Um, Also, their audience award went to Presenting Princess Shaw by Ido Har, and the festival also has a big interactive section. It was one of the first to kind of um, really promote new forms of documentary storytelling. So their Storytelling and Innovation Award went to the documentary Notes on Blindness by James Spinney, but its companion VR piece won the Alternate Realities VR Award, which also won the Storyscapes Award at Tribeca this year. Um, And then Oscilloscope picked up the documentary last month, and this Notes on Blindness, the VR 
companion piece, you know, a lot of us are like, cool, VR, how do we actually see it? Um, so this one's going to be available for download um, for the Samsung Gear later this month on June 30th. That was a huge um, piece at Sundance. Like everyone who saw Notes on Blindness just said it was their favorite thing that they saw and it was almost impossible to get into because you know it is a vr experience so the lines were like ridiculously long um so that's awesome that's coming out for well if you have a samsung that's awesome you get to watch it but <laughs> yeah or borrow your friend samsung i think ryan has one yeah i waited um for seven hours at tribeca to see it and never saw it yeah it's crazy yeah but you know it's also exciting that there seems to be an appetite for this kind of content it basically just recreates the experience of being blind um and the piece is based on this story of this writer john hole who was slowly going blind and he actually began to keep a diary on cassette tape that he made for his son um to sort of describe his experience and so this vr piece and i guess the accompanying documentary are based off of those cassette tapes well yeah it sounds like just the kind of thing that vr is really good at you know bringing a viewer into a, an experience sheffield also awarded a special prize for creative leadership to sheila nevins who's the president of hbo documentary films and if you don't know who she is she's just a total powerhouse like tour de force in the industry who's been at it for a long long time had her fingers in like every popular documentary you can probably think of so um, that's neat that they uh, recognized her in that way. So we've sort of been keeping uh, casual tabs on the whole Hollywood so white thing here. And uh, this isn't a huge news item, but it does um, let me have the opportunity to say something I never thought I would, which is that Hollywood might have a thing or two to learn from Broadway. <laughs> Um, basically, this year's Tony Awards were were, this, were also this past week, and black actors won more awards at this year's Tonys than in the last nine years of the Oscars combined. Black artists won all four of the major musical performance categories, lead actor, lead actress, supporting actor, supporting actress, as opposed to the Oscars, which have only awarded three black actors in the past nine years, all in the Best Supporting Actress category, and haven't even nominated an actor of color for the past two years. So get your dancing shoes on, Hollywood. It's time to step up. Nice. We had some really interesting pieces on No Film School this week, so I wanted to ask you guys to talk about a couple that you posted. M. Sure, yeah. So this really cool dude named Oscar Sharp um, and his really cool friend named Ross Goodwin, who's an AI researcher at NYU, collaborated to create this algorithm that essentially ingests screenplays. The two of them became obsessed with reading sci-fi screenplays, and they scoured the entire internet to try to find as many as they possibly could. Then they had the really crazy idea to try to write one themselves, but with an algorithm. The algorithm was something called an LSTM recurrent neural network, which is basically the software that we all use for text recognition. And it worked by ingesting the screenplays that they fed into it and writing its own version of a sci-fi, which Oscar described as the average of all of the screenplays that he had fed it. Of course, the, the script did not make a lot of sense, um, but it was really weirdly poetic. Um, it had some lines like, I need to leave, but I'm not free of the world. And another line was, he looks at me and he throws me out of his eyes. So that's some, <laughs> <laughs> cool. 
that's some pretty, you know, robotic space age poetry. Did they make it into a film? Oh, yeah. So they made it into a film that they called Sunspring. And it really is a testament to the power of Oscar's direction and the actor's ability because the script as I said, did not make a lot of sense, but they turned it into something with a really strong emotional undercurrent. And you can basically not understand what the characters are saying throughout the entire film as if they were speaking a different language, but you still know what they're communicating to each other based on their emotions and their body language. It's kind of an interesting experiment for more than one reason. I conducted an interview with Kodak Films president of motion picture and entertainment division, Steve Bellamy. And that got a pretty crazy reaction from everyone who read it. Um, Basically, he was describing how film has made a resurgence in the past few years. Um, Kodak was like a bankrupt company three years ago, so they really doubled down on their efforts of, of trying to supply filmmakers with what they need to be able to make movies on film again. And he had some pretty candid points about using film as a form of artistry that sort of is different than video. He was very passionate about the use of film. and op- I mean, it's kind of obvious because the dude is the president of Kodak. So, I mean, more than this just being his job, he really, really has a passion for it, as do many other directors that are out there right now, big time directors like, you know, Spielberg and Abrams and Christopher Nolan all and Tarantino all swear by film. Um, but that sort of incensed a lot of of our community because I think that some people took it as if he was knocking video makers and saying that video makers aren't artists in the same level as filmmakers are. But I just wanted to say, and I said this in the comments um, on that article, which got like, I guess like 55 comments, people were really engaged with it. And it was great to see this sort of debate go down. Um, Even though a lot of people think it's a dated debate, I think it's clearly still relevant just by the reaction we've got. I loved the debate and wanted to thank you all for mostly respectfully engaging in a really interesting dialogue about it. Yeah, and I I just wanted to say that Mr. that Mr. Bellamy that Steve isn't against shooting video. He made five films on video before he was the president of Kodak, and I think that in the end it's always going to come down to what medium works best for the story you're trying to tell through film, obviously. It's just really scary to think that we almost lost film as a tool forever and, you know, for me, I think that I'm I'm just grateful that we still have the choice as filmmakers to do this. Um, and we kind of need people like Steve exalting the the medium of film in order to keep it alive and and keep inspiring young filmmakers to at least give it a go. Right, because I mean, video is obviously the great democratizer, and it's fantastic what it's doing for people's abilities to you know get their work out there and do right. it cheaply. Like, and we at No Film School should never say that someone should not do a pro- their passion project because they don't have access to film. Right. And I I, I don't know. I, I, I guess I'm not... <laughs> I think that should be obvious, but, you know, just to clarify, we would never say don't shoot your project. I mean, I feel like every every week or every other week we're saying, like, you just got to get out there and do it. And look, so, I mean, let's face it. No Film School exists because Ryan, our founder, wrote the DSLR Cinematography Guide and was a huge advocate for the video revolution most of our advertisers are you know video do make video related products in some way 
98% of our articles have to do with filmmaking, but what we actually mean in practical terms is video making. On the other hand, I loved the interview. I loved Mr. Bellamy's passion and I loved um, that he was trying to, you know, convince young filmmakers that actually there are affordable, doable, reasonable ways to shoot on film. Right. Because that is the big misconception about film's availability. Yeah. And I mean, it was it was clear in the comments that, you know, a lot of people still disagree that it's it's very expensive to be shooting on film. Um, and it's obviously a much more painstaking process, but there's no question that that process will end up giving you some valuable knowledge about filmmaking. And as as Steve explained, the process itself is its own art form. The process of, you know, leaving things to chance by virtue of the projector having a different, you know, angle. And or, by the development process. Yes, exactly. By simply having sort of like a limited amount of uh, space to shoot, you know, and like to really have to make your decisions on what you're going to shoot and stick to them. and Creative restraints. Yeah, creative restraints. Deliberate. And creative restraints are always, in the end, what are going to help you create something really great, I think. I mean, that's what some of the panelists were saying on this panel that I went to yesterday, you know. Um, So anyways, really crazy reaction to that piece, something that I haven't really ever dealt with before. Um, So thanks for your passion. We encourage you to check out the article on the site. Um, It'll be linked to from the the post associated with this podcast and add your voice to the conversation good job john thanks liz and uh (laughs) so now i guess i'm going to talk a little bit about some of the gear news that happened this week um i for one spent two hours watching apple's big conference a few days ago uh to try and see if there would be anything relevant to us as filmmakers any new hardware or any, I mean, I, Final Cut I don't news. think Final Cut news is really on there. I, I think Final Cut's kind of just off their radar right now. Basically, all the notes that I ended up getting out of it were that uh, you're going to see bigger emoji on your iPhones now, and uh, you can get some cool new text messages and stuff. But it, it really just like goes along with the trend that we were seeing at NAB, which is, I guess, probably now a larger trend within technology and it's something that's been developing for a while obviously but it's that you know companies are focusing more and more on software and updating their software to make it work as best it can on the hardware that exists for their users which is comforting as we said at NAB but when you also you know have a four-year-old MacBook Pro and it barely runs and you can't edit podcasts on it it would have been nice to see them come out with something, you know, a, a more higher end, uh, not higher end, but a, a more powerful laptop. I think that would have been nice. That's what I was waiting for. Sounds like you're talking about someone you know. Yeah. Yeah. So the big news from Apple's keynote for filmmakers is no big news. No wah, big news. Wah, wah. Um, unless you're a developer, if you moonlight as a developer, uh, it's probably good news for you. They're opening up pretty much everything for developers to work on um, and submit their projects to Apple. Um so what else in gear news? Just a basic rundown. Uh, Panasonic has unveiled a new wide-angle lens, the Leica DG Summilux 12mm. It's a prime lens built for mir- mirrorless micro cameras. Uh, it apparently does very well in low-light situations. The lens is equivalent to a 24mm, and it's also weatherproof, which is pretty cool. Um, and you can get that for $1,300. One Indiegogo project that we were keeping our eye on is this new sort of tripod substitute, um, which is basically just a strap 
um, with a one quarter inch thread on top of it, which you can actually strap around any cylindrical object like a rail or a pipe. And then you can just screw your camera on top of the thread and voila, you have a little tripod for yourself. It's, it looks cool. It's much you know lighter and more portable than a clamp. Yeah, um, so it's being developed by a company called Mini Orenji. The product itself is called the Mini Plaster Hand. And as I said, it's currently on Indiegogo. There's 24 days left in the campaign, and it's already raised around $25,000. So if you want to get your hands on one, donate, and it'll only cost you between 40 bucks and 51 bucks, depending on the package you choose. We covered the Snapbag and Snapgrid light modifiers a little bit at NAB, and now DOP Choice has released a set for KinoFlow lights. The Snapbag and Snapgrid are lightweight, self-tightening, light-refining tools that utilize a rigid snap-up frame for easy setup, as well as have elastic straps to mount to light fixtures. It's a little hard to explain, so in the article itself, you can go check out the videos and uh, see how it works for yourself. We've mentioned um, the past couple weeks some of our pieces on Blackmagic's DaVinci Resolve 12.5, um, and we just want to remind you that as of last week, it's now available for download, and they have um, a free version. And this this 12.5 upgrade has like, as we've mentioned before, like a thousand changes. And I'm not exaggerating. Like when you say a billion dollars, it's actually over a thousand updates. So um, so worth checking out now that the download is available. And we've got some grant opportunities for you to keep an eye on. The MediMed documentary market has a deadline on June 30th. So this is for our documentary filmmaking friends based in uh, one of the 12 Mediterranean countries or 28 European Union countries. We talked about Sheffield DocFest at the top of the show, and this is a similar market. It's kind of a Euro-Mediterranean doc market. Um, where basically between 20 and 30 films are selected to pitch to TV execs and professionals. Um, so they're calling for entries of new doc projects and development. You have um, to have in place a minimum of 25% of your budget and or a broadcast guarantee or co-production agreement. And if you're selected, you get to go and attend this um, event and pitch in front of uh, commissioning editors and TV executives from around Europe. A really great opportunity whose deadline is coming up quick here is WB's Emerging Film Directors Workshop. The deadline for that is June 30th. It's a program designed to mimic the feature production process. Winners will have the opportunity to craft their short film utilizing every aspect of studio filmmaking from pitch to post. Um, so the short film can be any genre. It should be able to be shot in under two to three days and should be just under 10 minutes. You get the chance to shoot your short on the WB lot, and with that, you get the support of WB and all of the resources that come with it. So it is really crazy. It's like you get to shoot your short for a studio, basically, uh, so on neat. a studio. Yeah, and it's really easy to apply. Um, all you need to do is submit your resume, a page or less on your aspirations as a filmmaker, a one-page proposal for your film, and then you can optionally send them a digital sample of any of your directing work. So, you know, reels, commercials, music videos, anything you've done that you think could help your cause. There's literally no reason to not apply to this. Nope. And enrollment is open to candidates from all over the globe, but candidates must be at least 18 years old to apply. Okay. There's the one excuse you have. Sorry, 17-year-olds. For documentary filmmakers, the Amdocs Festival and Film Fund um, deadline is coming up. The early bird is June 18th. Uh, this is 
pretty cool because Amdocs is the American Documentary Film Festival. It's a big fest. And they also offer a huge documentary film fund prize, which is up to $50,000. So it's a little confusing. Um, we'll have the... Uh, We'll have the application link on the post associated with this site. Basically, it's the same submission form to submit a finished film to the festival itself or to submit a work in progress uh, film to the fund. Um, to submit to the fund, you basically just have to provide detailed story outlines and budgets for the works in progress. And then if you get selected as a fund finalist, you get to come screen a three-minute clip of the work-in-progress film at the festival before a jury and an audience. And when they announce their festival awards, they'll also announce the the winner of the $50,000 or up to $50,000 grant. So the festival itself takes place in Palm Springs. And um, if you are invited to the festival, you get an all-festival pass that lets you come and enjoy everything associated with the festival. And they also provide housing to filmmakers who have films in the fest, which is rare and uh, a great opportunity to visit Palm Springs. And now on to some festival deadlines. This one has a very special place in my heart. The Mill Valley Film Festival has a deadline of June 17th. I grew up in Mill Valley and I've been attending this festival since I was able to walk into a movie theater. It's incredible. It's very international. The programmers are very, very cultivated we all have ties to this festival. John's also from Marin. Yeah, I'm from Marin too. So, I mean, it's a it's always been a big deal there, but there's a pretty vibrant filmmaking community in Marin County. I mean, that's where, you know, uh, Skywalker Ranches. The Coppolas. The Coppolas. Tiffany Schlein, documentary, four-time Sundance documentary filmmaker, lives there. We've talked about her on the show. There's some great art house theaters out there, and it's just like this small little suburb outside of... Well, not really small, but it's just, you know, it's like a suburb outside of San Francisco. So my dream is that the film community will expand a little bit more and people will start moving there and I can move there and raise my kids there. (laughs) Wow. Life goals. Yes. Um, My dream is to never have the job I had at Mill Valley Film Festival again. (laughs) I actually worked there one summer, probably when Emily was a young tyke attending the festival. I worked in print traffic. So these were the old days. Um, There were film reels and my job, the shittiest job that anyone has at any film festival was to literally take the huge film reels from one theater to another in between films. The cool part was like I got super buff, but you guys have no idea because not only are film like film reels themselves heavy, but they're like to protect the film. They're carried and shipped in like big metal containers Things are so different now. I'm actually kind of glad that I like had that opportunity to just see firsthand what what projectionists do and like how the sort of yeah the magic of film that we were talking about earlier. Because now um, most film festivals just screen uh, digital projections. Even though this is such a high profile festival, it is actually non competitive, so they do not give out awards. But they do select audience favorites for a narrative feature and a documentary feature and a children's and family feature. When I was in high school, I had a short film screened here. So cool. Another festival deadline on June 17th is the Cinema Touching Disability Film Festival. We actually recently did a podcast on this very subject uh, called How Do You Make Films About Invisible People that dealt with the Real Abilities Film Festival, which is kind of a sister festival to this one. The Cinema Touching Disability takes place in Austin, and you've heard us all talk about how much we love Austin and the Austin filmmaking scene on this show. The festival's goal 
is to help dispel misperceptions about disability by screening films that portray people with disabilities living full lives. Um, so they don't want your films that that have kind of stereotypical representations of people with disabilities, but uh, they say they seek imaginative, multifaceted portrayals of people with disabilities, and they offer some cash prizes, and it's pretty neat that the top three winning films in each category will be screened at the Alamo Drafthouse in Austin, Texas, one of the coolest cinemas in the country. There's a June 18th deadline for the first ever time-lapse film festival. We just came out with a few articles this week about how to shoot successful time-lapses, and this one other director who took three years to film a time-lapse in Singapore. Obviously, this is a very specific festival, uh, but it's pretty cool that they've gotten some prestigious judges to come and give feedback. Uh, One of the judges is Godfrey Reggio, the director of the Kotsi trilogy, and I mean, those are movies that are very focused around time lapses, but they're also just some of the most beautiful films. And so the categories in this are pretty cool um, because they, you know, break down time lapse to an even more specific, to even a more specific degree. Um, The categories are worldwide nature time lapse, worldwide cityscape time lapse, northern lights time lapse, documentary social commentary time lapse, and experimental time lapse. It's kind of funny that there's a category for Northern Lights time lapse. Um, I was thinking that too. How many people are filming just, Northern Lights time lapse? It seems like a very uh, go-to um, shot for a lot of time lapse filmmakers. It's like Liz it's, brushing her teeth time lapse. Uh, yeah. It's going to be a category next year. It's fascinating, you guys. No, but it always is a cool moment in filmmaking when something new kind of shifts from being like a uh, niche, like a or just like a like a kitschy kind of like trend to something more artful. Yeah, totally. And now for one of our favorite segments, Ask No Film School. You know, as every week we go through the forums and uh, the boards and uh, I look for some of the questions that stand out in the community. One of these questions was pretty pertinent and I feel like it's something that's constantly on our minds and constantly we're being asked about it because it's in the name of our site. One of our community members read this article in which there are two videos comparing the pros and cons of going to film school. Her name is Emil F. Scanning, and she finally asked, why aren't you in school? (laughs) (laughs) Why choose not to go to film school, but become an autodidact instead? I'm just happy that we have smart enough readers that they use words like autodidact in their questions. Pretty good. I mean, that's a pretty clear indication. You don't need to go to film school right there. Agreed. You know? I mean, we have mixed experiences here at No Film School. We, We do this site so that, you know, anybody out there who's excited about making films and is making films can have a constant source, you know, of new information about gear and technique and can build community and find people to work with on their projects. Um, And some of us went to film school and some of us didn't. Um, Ryan and I didn't. You guys both did, right? I didn't, no. Oh. (laughs) Yeah. So why didn't you? Uh, Well, I, I'm, geez, I mean, I was in high school. I uh, actually went to acting school, which is, I kind of wish that I would have gone to film school over acting school. Um, Maybe just because it seems like there's a little bit more practical stuff you could learn from film school as far as like editing skills and stuff. But those are also things that you can learn outside of school. That's what I did. Um, I mean, you just got to familiarize yourself with whatever product you're using. Um, And if you're if you're easily if you're if it's easy for you to be able to pick up on like 
tech stuff like that, then I think that's a great way to get into the conversation at least or to start is like edit things, you know? I, I think in the conversations that I've had with people that have gone to film school, the biggest benefit all of them say is the community that you meet there, the people I that you meet. network. Yeah, network, the people that you're, you're growing with and you're like learning with, um, that you spend four years with, that you work on projects with, are people that will continue to be there for you for your entire career. Yeah, I actually went to NYU for undergrad um, in the film production department. And all of my friends were about five years out of school now. All of my friends have jobs all across the film industry in L.A., in New York, in distribution, in, you know, journalism, in production. So it's very often, actually, that I'm talking to somebody in my career and reaching out to a company. And it's just somebody that I went to film school with randomly and will make that connection. So it is definitely a very salient um, part of the experience. We would never say here, don't go to film school. No. But I think we also say you don't necessarily have to go to film school. And even what I'm hearing from you two and the way I feel is like it sort of depends on you and who you are and what kind of learner you are. Yeah. If you're the type of person that can go out and hustle and sort of build your own community yourself, you know, that's a good thing to know about yourself. And you might not need film school for that. You know, if you go volunteer on people's films, you know, find your own crew to sort of come up with and work together. Um, And if you are sort of the sort of learner like I am, that's sort of more of a hands on learner who wants to like be out there experiencing stuff rather than necessarily reading about it. um, You know, film school might not be for you, but there are certainly things I regret also about not having gone to film school Um, particularly in the kind of technical realm. On the other hand, the technology is changing so fast that I've certainly learned more, you know, again, just by having my hands out there than I probably would have in a classroom. It's it's hard to say. There are a lot of extra classroom um, classes in film school, too. Like my entire senior year, um, Friday for nine hours was devoted to production on a thesis film. So and we and we had to be constantly going out into the field, making films, you know, building crews, trying to lock down locations. So there was a lot of very hands on practical experience. But of course, nothing is like being hired for a job. Right. I was just and I think that, you know, it's just like any other form of art school in that sense where like when you're in the school, it's fantastic. It's like, you know, you have the time to actually be doing these things and not only do you have the time, but you have the room to fail. Yeah. You have the room to fail. You have the resource resources provided to you, but you know, once you're out of film school, all that stuff goes away and you're on pretty much a level playing field with people who didn't go to film school. I've learned a lot. The way I learn is through experience, like Liz was saying, and the things that tend to stick with me are the things that I've learned from experience, um, being on sets or just being thrown into wild, you know, situations. Um, So surrounding yourself with the opportunity or searching for those opportunities to experience while also exposing yourself to to like different influences and sort of following those influences for yourself, like you can create your own course, you know, you can watch whatever directors you think will be influential to your work. And that's stuff that, you know, you can do by yourself. You don't need a teacher to be telling you what movies to watch or what books to be reading. Yeah, I think it really all does go back to what kind of 
personality are you and how comfortable are you putting yourself out there? Because I have a lot of friends also who didn't go to film school, but every single one of them is an autodidact, the kind of person that will wake up at six in the morning to study film theory and then will send 50 emails per day based on people that they've met at, at festivals and things like that. If you're if you're not that kind of person, it definitely would behoove you to be put into a community where you have the biggest opportunity to flourish. I should also say that there's a whole kind of middle ground between going full-fledged into film school and taking no classes. So while I don't have a degree in film, I took a lot of classes, and there's a lot out there. It might even be that, you know, at your local community college, there's some film production class. It might be a more kind of affordable, accessible option that you can go to at night. Um, there are a lot of organizations that have classes uh, in the Bay Area where I came up um, the Bay Area Video Coalition has all sorts of certifications. And actually, it's a great segue into our next question because another reader, Sarah Ardith Bonner, asked us if, if anyone knew of any film workshops that focus primarily on editing. She basically said she recently began her career in the industry. She's a professional editor, but she wants to continue learning as much as she can. And there's actually a lot out there. Um, not just for editing, but for kind of every every facet of the film industry. Specifically for editing, I know IFP, the Independent Filmmaker Project in New York, has an editor's lab where you can apply as a relatively inexperienced assistant editor. And you're, you get assigned to a project where you essentially work for free, but you, it's your opportunity to work as an assistant editor on um, you know, a really exciting up and coming festival premiere. And you work under an editor who gives you the right kind of guidance um, across the film's production, post-production. There's a lot in New York. I mean, if you're here, if you're based here, or if you can make time in your schedule to sort of come here for a chunk, um, DCTV, the Downtown Community Television Workshop, offers a lot of kind of one-off classes. So you could just take a class like to bone up on Resolve or something. Um, the New York Film Academy offers 12, a 12-week 12 editing workshop, so kind of a full-on immersive program. I think one of the most interesting, this is kind of akin to the IFP project Emily was talking about. There's a, a place here called the Edit Center and basically, they give six-week workshops where students work on real films with real directors. Uh, so a director will have a work-in-progress film. They'll bring it to the edit center, and the students will work on on cuts of this film. And it's not just like any little old films. It's like real high-quality um, indies have been class projects. Like Winter's Bone was one of their films. And if you're not in New York, um, there's a lot of online resources that you can check out. I mean, I I learned how to use Audition and Premiere through this website called lynda.com, um, which is run by LinkedIn, which is now run by Microsoft. But um, that's definitely an awesome resource. I mean, they have like five-hour long, four-hour long courses you can take um, that are uh, – like on video, but then they have the full text of the video right next to it. So if you ever want to pause it or if you just want to like copy and paste some of the stuff that they're saying, it's a really great way to be an autodidact. And speaking of autodidacts, you can also read Walter Murch's book In the Blink of an Eye, which is essential reading for any aspiring editor. He's the best. It's lynda.com is L-Y-N-D-A, Yes, right? L-Y-N-D-A. Cool. Um, I, I think it costs money, but there's I think there, there are also free uh, courses in addition to the ones that cost money. And there's no question it's more affordable than film school. Yeah, for sure. Here's some indie movies that you can check out this week, opening up and coming to your TV. 
coming to VOD is this movie By the Sea. Uh, it came out last year, got some mixed reviews, but it's sort of Angelina Jolie's passion project, um, I'd say. Brad Pitt is also in it, so it's the Pitt Jolie's passion project together. It's uh, sort of a romantic thriller that's set in France during the mid-1970s. Pitt and Jolie play a married couple that seem to be growing apart, but when they linger in one quiet seaside town, they begin to draw close to some of its more vibrant inhabitants. And I think that probably an affair will ensue or something. So. Ooh, sounds like one of them life imitates art situations. Trumbo is coming to Amazon Prime Instant on June 16th. This is a Jay Roach film from 2015 has a really excellent cast Brian Cranston, Al Fanning, Diane Lane, um, and covers an important topic that um, you know affects us all even to this day. It's about Dalton Trumbo, who's played by Cranston, um, and how his career kind of comes to a crushing end when he and other Hollywood figures were blacklisted for their political beliefs. Also coming to Amazon Prime is this horror anthology film called Southbound. It's coming out June 20th. Um, It was at the Toronto International Film Festival a couple of years back, and it's from the makers of VHS. So it could be said that, you know, VHS was really one of the first of these horror anthology films, and it's a continuation of that. These horror films actually interlock to create one overarching narrative. It's supposed to be pretty cool, so keep an eye out for that. There is a release coming out on Vimeo, which we haven't covered so much yet. It's kind of a newer platform for features to be released. Uh, This one's called Daddy Don't Go. It's coming out on June 19th. It's a documentary that was made by my fellow film fatale, Emily Apt. She's been named one of Variety Magazine's top 10 directors to watch. The film was executive produced by Omar Epps and Malik Yoba from Empire. Um, basically, they they have a statistic on their all their releases for the film that in New York City, more than half of African-American children and over 40% of Latino children are growing up without fathers. So Emily made the film kind of in response to the statistic. It follows four young fathers who are trying hard to buck that trend. Um, it's a pretty emotional film, and that's why it's being released on Father's Day. Here's also your No Film School reminder to celebrate Father's Day. Thank you, Liz. I forgot. <laughs> um, so coming out this weekend in theaters, uh, this much talked about documentary Raiders, the story of the greatest fan film ever made. It's being put out by Drafthouse Films, who run Alamo Drafthouse and put out some really great weird releases. And this one documents the efforts of three childhood friends who attempted to create a shot-by-shot remake of the Indiana Jones film Raiders of the Lost Ark. And they go to some pretty extreme lengths to do this, um, like creating all their own sets, creating all their own props. Uh, The way that they pull off some of these stunts is very ingenious and could be actually useful if you're trying to, you know, look for some easy ways to make some big budget effects. Oh my God, this sounds like a very no film school film. Yeah, so that's opening in New York, um, and then hopefully it'll be on demand soon. Um, But that's definitely something to check out, especially if you're a filmmaker and an Indiana Jones fanboy like me. Also coming out is Nuts. Uh, That's coming out June 20th uh, to limited release. Uh, This is a film that premiered at Sundance in January. We actually have a video with the director, Penny Lane. It's an animated documentary that tells the story of Dr. John Romulus Brinkley, who was this eccentric genius, uh, but 
also liar, <laughs> major liar who built an empire with his goat testicle impotence cure. And I'll leave that process to your imagination. But if you want to learn more about it, definitely go check out this movie. Um, a few of the reporters that went to Sundance with us uh, said it was actually their favorite film that they saw at the festival. So it's going to be good. She's also, a great director. Yeah, Penny we also have mad respect for Penny here because um, when there was all the controversy at Tribeca this year about another medical imposter mm -hmm. um, with that Vaxxed film, Penny came out and, and wrote a response to Robert De Niro and to the festival basically saying, look, I just made this film about medical imposters. I know how dangerous they can be, and I urge you not to run the film and ultimately Tribeca didn't run the film and we have an exclusive interview with Penny on No Film School talking about why she made that choice to sort of put herself out there um, and sort of protest that film vaxxed. Also online um, outside of these kind of official platforms I thought it was worth mentioning that there are several films from this year's San Francisco International Film Festival playing in their online screening room and they're only there until June 30th it's a really cool lineup of free streaming films, uh, including one of my favorites from South by Southwest, this documentary Under the Sun that was shot in North Korea. I also want to give a little shout out um, to our friends and office mates who we look at and hear and spend time with every single day here at the No Film School office from a great organization called Make Music New York. Their big event that they've been working towards all year is here in New York on June 21st. That is next Tuesday. Basically, they have arranged free public concerts in every borough, in every nook and cranny, in just literally hundreds of public spaces all over New York. So if you're in the area, check out their website, Make Music New York, and go see yourself some really fun free live shows. And one more final plug, because I know you love them. In addition to Indie Film Weekly, you may know that we do uh, No Film School podcast interviews. Next Monday, we'll feature an interview that I conducted with Dan Nuxall from Rooftop Films and Christina Cachopo from the Alamo Draft House, who are both super cool people doing super cool programming in the super coolest borough of the country. So you could arguably say that these guys are like the arbiters of cool in the film world. And it's uh, really fun to hear about how they make their film selections, how filmmakers can get involved, um, and, and sort of what, what goes on in their minds and sort of behind the scenes in putting together some really super film events. You can read about all the stories we've been talking about today on nofilmschool.com. There will be a post accompanying this podcast with the specific articles we've mentioned. And links to all the film festival deadlines and grant deadlines. If you haven't done so yet, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes. I'm John Fusco. You can follow me at Jim underscore John underscore Jim on Twitter. And you can follow me at LizFilm on Twitter and us at No Film School on Twitter. And thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you next week. Bye.